Jesus' name, amen. I want to title my message this morning out of Colossians 3, verse 1, Heavenly Minded. Heavenly Minded. Oliver Wendell Holmes is attributed with making the statement for the first time, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Johnny Cash also put this sentiment in a song where he wrote, you're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Is that what Paul is saying in this passage? Seek and set your affection, your mind, is what the word means, on things above and not on things of the earth. Is Paul dichotomizing in spatial terms that we use when we think of heaven, we think of what? Above, we think of earth, we think of beneath or below. Is Paul partitioning these two things and dividing them to suggest that we must get our heads above the clouds and sort of dwell there in such a way that disconnects us from tasks, responsibilities, work, family life? Is Paul drawing the line between the secular and the sacred, which Catholicism has developed, where if you really want to be sacred, spiritual, you've got to come into a house like this or put on the garb of Christianity, and everything else is just secular, you know, the work and the things of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer expresses his disdain for otherworldliness in a way that checks us out from earthly good. He says, whenever life begins to become oppressive and troublesome, a person just leaps into the air with a bold kick and soars, relieved and unencumbered into so-called eternal fields. He leaps over the present. He disdains the earth. He is better than it, after all. Besides the temporal defeats, he still has his eternal victories, and they are so easily achieved. Otherworldliness also makes it easy to preach and to speak words of comfort. However, Christ does not lead man in a religious flight from this world to other worlds beyond. Rather, he gives him back to the earth as its loyal son. So that's one extreme we want to avoid with Paul's words that somehow to be heavenly minded, to seek those things above, that we really do become very little good on earth that we're doing. Another extreme to avoid is Gnosticism itself, which Paul is countering in this epistle. The Gnostic idea that really heaven is the dimension of the realm where purity exists and the earthly dimension is, well, rather impure. It's evil and these bodies are evil. So you really can't expect to gain any purity in these bodies unless you have our secret knowledge and our visions. Then we can help your spirit escape from the mundane, from the secular, from these evil, impure bodies into the heavenly realms. And what does Paul say? You can't go any higher than where Christ sits. That kind of thinking leads to antinomianism, which says, hey, if this body is so wrecked and wrapped with sin and impure, and heaven is the real place of purity, then you really can't fight sin. What's the point? Just give way and let go and let live for which Paul counters emphatically with the command or the imperative mood, kill sin, therefore. So that's an extreme we must avoid as well. What is Paul saying then? 
how does this work? Well, imagine for a moment if your eyes, which move in tandem, could be disconnected from one another, independent, so that you could literally take one eye and look up while the other eye stays horizontal and looks down. That's actually what Paul is calling for in this passage. He's saying when our minds and affections and our seeking is on things above, it begins to transform what we see on earth horizontally in work, family, pressures, marriage, and many other things that we do in life. So Paul is not calling for an either-or. He's calling for both as we look up and heavenward it begins to transform into an earthly kind of good. So Paul is saying, be so heavenly minded that it begins to transform you into earthly good. Now you will ask me, what does that look like? For which I would say this. Heaven's purity is progressively mortifying sin. Verse 5. See, the ethical instruction that follows is out of heavenly mindedness. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Heaven's unity is starting to push out prejudices. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all colors, shapes, nationalities of any kind. It's pushing out prejudice. Heaven's clothing, when you're thinking above, is beginning to shape itself in mercies, meekness, long-suffering, kindness, forbearance. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Heaven's love is beginning to shape itself in a bond. Above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Heaven's world is about love. How can we bring that love down here? Through a heavenly mindedness that starts to shape an earthly good. Heaven's peace begins to influence and rule the hearts and minds of God's people. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Heaven's wisdom begins to take shape in speaking truth to one another and in your singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That's the earthly good that begins to shape or take shape. One one eye is heavenward and one eye is toward the task, the responsibilities, the church life and the relationships that we have. Heaven's reconciliation begins to take shape in words of forgiveness, forgiving one another. If any man hath a quarrel against any... Forgive as Christ forgave you. Heaven's relationships, which are pure and wonderful, begins to take shape in your words and in your deeds and your thanksgiving. In 3.17, how? Wives, husbands, children, families, church, servants, work. Colossians 3.17 to Colossians 4.1. The ethical instruction, or we'll say the morality, is taking shape out of a moral vision that ascends into the heavens where Christ sits and then looks horizontally and begins to shape itself in a way 
that Paul will teach us, beginning in verse 5. So my outline is this. Number one, set your mind on heavenly realities. Number two, set your mind in heavenly places. Number three, set your mind on His heavenly appearance. First, set your mind. That's the central command. The two commands are set and to seek. Imperative mood. Paul wants us to be secure in certain realities so that when we move to verse 5, we have a security and a grounded and a rootedness that's going to help us to do everything or to grow in that earthly goodness shaped by the Holy Spirit in Christ that Paul is calling for. That helps us what? Not be deceived by philosophies and vain deceit. (coughs) Heavenly realities. Perhaps you've heard of a reality TV show, right? Reality TV programming is where you take unprofessional, ordinary people like you and me, and they are unscripted. So nobody is reading lines or memorizing. It's just totally unscripted. And they come into your living room, into your life, and they start to film unscripted life where just things happen, pressures come, and you see reality as it exists. But my question is, is that really reality? Well, I think it is. What is reality? What is ultimate reality? Ultimate reality is foundational to everything that exists. It's foundational to sustaining everything that exists. And ultimate reality, where all things exist, is moving toward an ultimate end for which every reality is pointing to. If you take that ultimate reality out of your life, you are living shadow realities. Shadows of things to come. And when the sun sets on your shadow-like realities, what happens? The shadow is gone forever. The ultimate reality is God, and He's a person in Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we separate God in Christ from reality. We're living shadow realities, and they don't end good. The shadow realities of Judaism or Gnosticism, Paul is countering with things above because that is reality. And what Paul wants to remind us in verse 1 is that these ultimate realities are that you are in Christ who is ultimate reality. Number one, you were were dead. That's the first thing he wants you to remember. In verse 3, you are dead or you died, aorist tense. Past tense. You died. Colossians 2.20 Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why are you then subject to ordinances? Taste not, touch not, handle not. Why are you subject to rules and regulations? Why are you being drawn into philosophies when you died with Christ when He died? Paul in Romans 6.11 using a more expanded version of what Paul says here in Colossians 2 will say, if Then, or since you indeed are risen with Christ, then what? I'm going to read it. Likewise, reckon 
reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Reckon means it's reality. So think this way. You are dead with Christ and you're alive to God. Before you ever mortify the first sin, before you get to all the ethical instruction, you need to understand this ultimate reality. You've died. And therefore sin does not have dominion over you. If it did, none of this would be a reality. If sin still has a dominion and rule over you like it did, mortification and unity and reconciliation and relationships, not going to happen. But Paul says, it will because you died. If we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now there's the second reality. You're risen. You have risen with Christ. That guarantees and secures your future resurrection. That's a reality. That's a security that Paul wants you to be rooted and grounded in. That's not a potentiality. As a believer in Christ, when He died, you died. Because He represented you on the cross. You were with Him. Your name was on His breastplate. And so when He died, you died. When He was raised, you were raised with Him. By union with Christ. Colossians 2.12 Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are raised with Him through faith in the operation of God, who raised Him from the dead. Your union with Christ brings you into present possession of Christ because of what He did when He died and raised from the cross. You have died. You have risen. Number three, you are seated with Him in the heavenly places. By right and by union, you are seated in heavenly places. In the Bible, when the writers will speak about being on the right hand of God, they mean to rule at the right hand of God. is a place of supremacy and rule. It's a place of intercession where Christ intercedes for us. He died, yea, is risen again, yea, is at the right hand of God, yea, He makes intercession for you. Perhaps the most glorious is that it is a place of accomplishment and success. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer will make this point when he will say, every priest daily standing and ministering the sacrifices often ministered the same sacrifices which could never take away sin. Now how do we know they couldn't take away sin? Because they daily stood and daily offered the same sacrifices. If they could have atoned for sin, why would you offer them again and again and again? To point to the fact that it wasn't finished, it wasn't accomplished. But this man, Jesus Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down where? On the right hand of God. Why isn't he daily offering himself? Because it's finished. He completed the sacrifice and God received it. From whenceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he's perfected forever them that are being sanctified. So the offering of Christ has done two things for which you're seated with Him. He sat down, you sat down with Him. By right and by union. 
because you possess Him by faith. The offering accomplished your perfection once for all. Never repeated. Perfected means completed, done, finished. Your salvation is finished. You believe that? Oh, you need to believe it before you start mortifying sin. You need to rest in that as a husband and a wife in marriage. You need to be firm in the heavenly reality that when he sat down, it was finished, accomplished. He said himself, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. The death of Christ purchased your complete, full, finished salvation. And by union with Him, you are complete. It's finished. But it purchased a second thing. His offering purchased your progressive sanctification. For by one offering, He is perfected forever. Them that are being sanctified. Jesus is finishing the finished. Jesus is perfecting the perfect. Jesus is purifying the pure. And we need to understand that reality. Or we're going to be in despair in the mortification of sin. We're going to be in despair in our relationships. Because we may be thinking somehow I'm contributing or taking away from the finished work of Christ. You're not. Rest in the reality of the finished work of Christ. Your progressive sanctification is not contributing to your purity, but it's a necessary fruit of having been made pure because it demonstrates that you're seated with Christ. So what follows in the pursuit and progression in verse 5 through the end of the chapter in chapter 4 verse 1 is the fruit of being united to Christ And it demonstrates and proves you died, you're resurrected, and you're sitting with Christ by right and by union at the right hand of God. Number four, you're hidden with Christ in God. It means to be concealed. There's a way in which what we shall be has not yet appeared, has it? We look like other people. The world sees us. They don't see anything different. But one day, you're going to shine like lights, like the sun shines. So in some sense, you're hidden, you're concealed from what the world sees in terms of what you are in Christ. But in another way, you're hidden in that your life is secure in Christ. To hide, to conceal is to have security. It's like being sealed or hidden in a refuge, in a strong tower, which no one can penetrate, not the devils of hell themselves. So you've died, you've been raised, you're seated at the right hand of God, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And lastly, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, guess what? You will appear with Him where? In glory. Now what are the implications? Mortify, therefore. You remove that reality, your mortification is going to stumble and be chaotic. And you're going to be in despair sometimes. Sometimes you're going to be full of pride, thinking, I I got this done. No, no, it's out of these heavenly realities that we move forward with a kind of earthly good of pursuing purity and unity and reconciliation and the clothing of heaven and the words of heaven and the relationships that will be pure in heaven 
that heaven's foretaste or sampling is bringing down to the church. When? When we are resting in these heavenly realities. Beloved, set your mind again and again on the heavenly realities you have in Christ. Then, set your mind in heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul says these are things above. He says, seek those things above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, again, the illustration of one eye heavenward, one eye earthbound. So he's not dichotomizing. He is bringing the two together with an emphasis on setting our affections, our thoughts, our minds on things above. Some scholars say there's no English equivalent to the word, the Greek word for affection, which can be translated mind because it's it's more than simply thinking. It is a way of feeling, thinking, understanding. It's a direction of your life. It is to direct yourself in a certain manner or way. The best way to think of the word is to think of mindset or disposition. A mindset is a predominant or prevailing tendency of your spirit. Mindset is a settled way of thinking, feeling, understanding. It's a a direction, it's an orientation of your soul in a certain direction, which Paul calls heavenward. It is with things above. So first of all, what that means is to set your mind on Christ as your life. When Christ who is our life. When you set your mind on things above, you're setting your mind on Christ above, and you're setting your mind on Him as your life. Third person, plural. First person, singular. You just said it in the song. You said, He is my life. Now, you know what that means, don't you? You ever said that about someone? Well, it's her life. It's their life. It's his life. What you mean is it's very important. It's central. It's loved, enjoyed, treasured, chased, hunted, sought after, thought after, life-shaping, life-influencing. Am I wrong? That's what you mean when you say, football is his life. Music is her life. Family is her life. His job is his life. You mean it is central, loved, treasured, sought after, thought after, chased, hunted, life-shaping, life-influencing. Is Christ your life? Now we could parse that three ways. First of all, you saw me up here sing that song. I sang it, I said it. If that has never been true of me, I am a total hypocrite. I'm fooled and you're fooled. That's one way. The second way is that when you said that, you really mean it. You are pursuing Christ as your life. That's good. A third way is that when you said it and you sang it, you meant it, but at this moment in your life, it's not true. 
I'm going to put away the first one because I don't want to be a hypocrite and I don't think you are either. I'm going to say either you're pursuing Christ that way or at this moment in your life you really want to, but He's just not. He's not. But He needs to be. Now let's check this in two other places in Scripture. First, Mark 8.33. Jesus turns to Peter and uses the word phroneo, which is the word for affection or mind. He turned to Peter and said, Get thee hence behind me, Satan, for thou savorest. You don't think, you don't have a mindset on the things of God, but the things that be of men. In other words, Satan does not seek those things which are above. He seeks those things which are above. And at that moment, Peter, Christ was not his life. Now when you read about Peter, you certainly know that he loved Christ. But at that moment, Jesus identifies a certain mindset that is not above, but is below. And what was Peter after? Why did he rebuke Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, and in three days I'll raise again. And Peter says, not so, Lord. You know what was important to Peter? You know what Peter loved? He treasured, he enjoyed, he sought after, he chased, and it was shaping his life. At that moment, he wanted the wealth and the power of sitting on the 12 tribes of Jerusalem, the, the, the throne, and judging and wiping out the Romans who had all the power, all the joy, all the treasure. And he thought Jesus was going to get him here, there. What was Peter's problem? His mindset was earthly. Jesus at that moment was not his life. It was something else that was his life. Let's look at Jesus himself where Paul uses this word concerning Christ in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you. Savor affection, mind. Let this mindset be in you which was in Christ. What did Christ love, treasure, enjoy, chase, hunt, and shaped every waking moment of His life? Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God? Made Himself of no reputation. Took upon Him the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. And he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He being God, did not think it robbery or something to be clutched, grasped, held onto, retained. And what was it? He didn't think his equality of not being a creature to be something so grasped That he didn't come down to be what? A creature and be made in the likeness of you. What was his life-shaping mindset that moved him to leave the glories of heaven and become something he had never been in eternity? A mere man. Not merely, but the God-man. He did not empty himself of his divinity He simply didn't grasp, hang on to a mindset that said, I must have this because he didn't have the mindset. What was the moving motivation that he became obedient, but not just obedient, obedient to the death of the cross? The terrible, horrible, horrific cross. 
Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, whether things in heaven, things on the earth, or things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, and here it is, to the glory of God the Father. What was his mindset? What did he love? What did he treasure? What did he enjoy? What shaped his life? It was the glory of his Father. Let this mind be in you every day as we seek and set and strive and struggle to have a mindset for those things above that will then begin to shape those things below as we begin to see and do as Christ did, albeit imperfectly, yet we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 15. We have His mindset because it's been given to us by Christ Himself. He purchased this mindset. And with that mindset, we've got to struggle. We've got to set. We've got to obey as we consider those heaven realities and what they mean to us and for us. So the next question is then, how would that take shape? Okay, if I'm, if I'm tracking with you, preacher, Christ is my life. He's important. He's central. He's enjoyed. He's loved. And all the life-shaping ways that He's to be for us daily. Well, the first thing you may think I'm going to, which would make total sense, is the Word of God and prayer, right? Certainly, if you're going to set your mind on Christ, and He's going to be central, and He's going to be loved and enjoyed and treasured, and He's going to shape your life, then the Word of Christ must dwell in you richly, and it must be through prayer that we ask God to do the very things that we are dependent on Him to do. But, assuming you agree with that, I want to think about it in other terms. First, Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now that's another song you sang this morning. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The word first means first in order, time, place, or importance. So we're just going to consider them all for a few moments. What would it look like? What would it mean for me to set my affections, my mind, to have this mindset and then to seek? The setting is a verb, your mind on Christ, that then the seeking is the pathway in which that setting takes place. It's the pathway we're moving in seeking when we are every day setting our minds on Christ. First in order. Order, that just means arrangement, like succession, one, two, three, four, five, all right? So Christ is your life, He's to be the priority, if you, if you parse priority, prior. He's to be the one that is prior to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So if you had ten tasks to do every day, and the ten tasks were on your desk to be sorted through as to the priority What this means, when the kingdom of God is first, you take that one task and you set it over here because you no longer decide that task. It's over. Now, two through ten, you've got to shuffle and say, okay, when am I going to do what next? But number one is prior to everything. The decision is over. Do you know what our problem is? 
we're still deciding whether we want to read God's Word and pray. We're still deciding what we want to do on Sunday. We're still deciding what we're going to do in Bible study. When you set and you seek, the decisions are over. Like marriage, you made a covenant decision to marry one person. Before that, what did you do? I might want to go out with her. I might want to talk to her. I might want to get to know him. Over. Never again. Men. How would you like it if your wife, when you said to her one evening, Honey, I want to take you out to dinner. She said, Well, let me think about it. I want to decide. Okay, what's the decision? Well, there's this man that moved in next door. Neighbor, he's pretty attractive. I've got to decide whether I want to spend time with you or with him. That won't work. And it doesn't work with Christ. The problem is we think it does. If Christ is your life, beloved, the decisions are over. Now, there are many decisions we've got to make as Christians, but there are some I don't have to decide. If you're still deciding, then in some way Christ is not your life. He's been removed from the place of central, loved, enjoyed, chased, sought sought after, thought after. Life-shaping, life-influencing. And we need to get back to He is in order numero uno. And I'm not deciding anymore. When you do that, it's going to help you in life. Ezra 7.10 Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach judgments and statutes in Israel. But there's a problem. Ezra is not in Israel. He's in Babylon. And the verses preceding it said on the first day of the first month, to the first day of the fifth month. It's five months. He walked. He rode a donkey. He went to Jerusalem. He didn't have to decide. His heart was prepared and fixed. Now me, on the other hand, after knowing the journey, I might say, well, let me think about that. <laughs> I've got to decide whether I want to take a trip five months. For you, 900 miles, 15 hours in a car. Back then, five months. When your heart is fixed, prepared, it's set, and you're seeking, there are certain decisions you no longer have to make. Now, yes, God may make some decisions for you where you're sick, you're encumbered, and to participate in ways that He's commanded in His providence, you're not participating. We understand that. That goes without saying, doesn't it? When it comes to the commands of Scripture, as far as my participation, I no longer have to decide. It is Christ first in order. Then Christ first in time. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Psalm 63. We'll look at an Old Testament passage where Paul is referring, or David rather, to seeking God in relation to time. He would say in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. O Elohim, creator God, you are my El. You're my Jehovah. You're my strong tower. You're my strength. You're my power. So what's the next statement? Early will I seek you. Early. My soul thirsteth for you, 
My flesh longeth for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Why? Because your loving kindness is better than life. Translate. You're my life. You're my life. What else would I do? So I'm seeking you first early. Early. That means two implications. One, early in the morning. Be times at dawn. What do you do in the morning? Better question. What do I do in the morning? How long does it take for God to hear your voice? David said, not very long in Psalm 5. In the mor- my voice thou shalt hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee. And look up. Set your affection on things above, not on things there. He's looking up. Now, he's not checking out of being a king and all that he's got to do. He's looking up and he's looking forward and it's shaping his life. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Why is God hearing the voice of David? Because God has no pleasure in the wicked people who don't pray. Because they don't need. Do you know that God delights in your prayer? Because you're bringing your need to Him and it magnifies His sufficiency, His power, His rescue, His deliverance, His grace. And you get the help to do what you cannot do without Him. So God should hear our voice in the morning. And we should seek Him first in the morning. Because I don't know about you, when I don't, then by the end of the day, it probably didn't happen, right? He probably never heard my voice in the morning. So strive as you set your affection on things above that He hears your voice in the morning. Because that priority that you're doing in the morning... For me, sometimes it's just sleep can become the priority. Whatever that priority is, whatever that thing that has value to you, Christ should be the priority and the greater value when He's our life. It also means earnestly. I'll throw another in here. To the young people, early in your life, don't wait. Ask any of the older people if habits can set in and hard to break. Start good spiritual habits now. Not when you're 30. Say, well, I'm 30, I'll do that. You may not reach 30. Who who told you you're going to live to 30? You don't know that. Start today, today early in your life and establish early spiritual habits and wake up and seek the Lord. Pray. We're not talking about a lot of formality. Just call on the name of the Lord. Even if you woke up late and you're getting your books to school, call on His name while you're moving. He delights to hear from you. Why does God need us? That's not what I said. He doesn't need to hear from you. You need to speak to Him. And you need to hear from Him. Because He's gracious, He's kind, He's good. And He brings the fullness of Christ to meet your needs. 
when he's our life. So do it early in your life. Do it earnestly is also what the word means. Verse 4 in Psalm 63. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When? When is that going to happen? When you seek Him early, when you seek Him earnestly, and when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. David's bed was not in any particular location. His bed in this scene is the cave of Adullam. He's on run from Saul. He probably doesn't lay his head on a bed of any kind for longer than a few days I suppose David gets up with Scripture in his hand, he's ready to pray, and he hears the beating hooves of Saul's horses. He says, it's okay, I'm just going to spend an hour here. No, he closes the book and he starts running. So what does he do then? At night. He didn't say, well, I missed it. Do you ever miss it? We miss it, don't we? So at night, he stays awake. He remembers God on his bed, and meditates on God in the night watches. When David moves his bed, he takes his religion with him, or better, he takes his God with him. In meditation, which means to ponder, to muse. See, setting your affection on above is to ponder who Christ is, to ponder His works, His love, His grace, His mercy, His cross, His goodness, His deity, His eternality, His greatness, His power, His strength. It's to ponder it, to muse it, rather than to be amused. Negative article, no thinking, like an amusement park. Now, whoa, I like amusement parks. You invite me, I'll go with you. They're a lot of fun. But you don't think at an amusement park. You don't think. Now you may think, well, which ride's next? That's about all the things. What I want to eat next? No more thinking happens. You know what you do? You emote. And you feel, amazingly, a combination of emotions. You're scared to death on the roller coaster. It produces great anxiety, but people are raising their hands screaming, yay! You're not thinking. Fine at an amusement park, but not fine when it comes to God. We are to muse. We live in a culture that's dumbing us down. We don't think about God because we have images that come before my face every day. Yes, they do. And before yours. And they amuse. And they're interesting. And somebody's doing the thinking for me. So this is not a call to get rid of all the images. It is a call by God to say, muse, think, meditate. He didn't give us images to look at. He gave us a book to ponder and to look at and to think. The word early also implies painstakingly. You just parse that word, there's your meaning. To take pain in what you're doing. You think it was easy for David to stay awake? You think it's easy to sleep in a cave? It was painstaking effort. Like many of the things you do. every week that takes pain. It hurts, but you're willing to do it. Why? Because of the gain. 
You know the old statement, no pain, no gain? And you're willing to take painstaking effort because of the value of the gain. And here is Christ. Here is Christ, your life. And you won't even stay awake or get up early. I won't, I won't even keep myself awake. Now, sometimes I have to slap my face. That's painful. Okay. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. He is. Painstakingly, and, and, the, and the benefit of that painstaking effort is he's our help in the shadow of his wings. He satisfies my soul as with fatness and marrow. And with my mouth, I'm, I'm speaking joyfully, even while he's in the cave of Adullam and he's being hunted. Because he has his mind set on Jehovah above. And he's seeking God early. And it's shaping David's life as a king. The same reality can work for us, beloved. It can work for us. The painstaking effort that we're going to see in verse 5 is, you know, sometimes an idol that you have is very hard to get rid of. You ever tried that? You, you want it to open, you just, and it stays there. That lie in your right hand, Isaiah 44, he has a lie in his right hand. He cannot say, hey, there's a lie here. We, you hold it because it feels good. You think it's going to do something for me. It's going to serve me. And, and even you recognize it, you're like, I can't get rid of this addiction. I can't get rid of this thing. You know why? Jesus never said, open your hand. He said, get a hacksaw and cut it off and sever it at the wrist. Matthew chapter 5. Don't let go of it. Cut it off. If your arm offends you, cut it off and cast it far from you. If your eye offends you, gouge it and get rid of it. You know what that is? Painstaking effort. It's not easy. I hear what you're saying, get rid of all my idols, right? Some of them you can't cut off. If your life is your children, guess what? Mm? They stay, right? There's some things we've made our life that not going anywhere. Some things, they need to be cut off. They need to be cut off. And Jesus says, cut them off. When He's first in order and in time. Although it's painful, it's hard to let go of an idol that you treasure because that idol has become a greater treasure than Christ. Sometimes the idol has to stay. It can't keep being an idol, you understand. But it stays. If the marriage is an idol, the fame is an idol, it stays. But you've got to set your affection on things above so that it has its proper place in the orbit around Christ. So He's central, loved, treasured, sought after, thought after, longed after. Life-shaping, life-influencing. I don't know about you. I wish I could say he's my life every day in a real experiential way, but I can't and you can't. But through what Paul is saying, we can because we're in him, we're attached to him. He's not trying to push us away. He's pulling you in. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek Him in order. He's prior to everything. Seek Him in time, early, earnestly, and if necessary. And it is painstaking. Is Christianity hard? War, fight, with the desires that compete in your soul? 
death, kill. It hurts. But the gain is far superior in Christ. Beloved, set your affection on things above. Seek those things which are above which Christ, where Christ sits. Because you're, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, you'll be with Him in glory. Now therefore, let's start moving on the pathway. If you've been there, keep moving. Keep looking to these realities in Christ for which all this flows. If you haven't, God is calling you to return this morning. He's calling you to cut your hand off. He's calling you to return to His supremacy and to seek Him prior to everything. If you'll stick around this afternoon, we'll look at the rest of this sermon as we consider heavenly mindedness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are God, and we first just feel compelled to confess our sins. Who here, after hearing what Paul says and writes, could not be compelled to look at ourselves and say, I fall short. Oh Lord, we as a church fall so short. So Lord, help us out of the reality of who Christ is for us to remember who we are in Christ. We have a new identity. There's a new community. There's a new man. And you're shaping us after the image of God. So Lord, renew our hearts and minds with this sermon today. And may we continue or for the first time, or get back in line so that our direction will once again be Christward. And Lord, satisfy our souls as you did David, as with marrow and fatness. Give us a mouth so that we praise you with joyful lips. And may our meditations, our musing be sweet as the Holy Spirit brings your word to our hearts and minds and affections so that we have understanding and enlightenment of who Christ is in such a way that we don't fall prey to the philosophies in vain deceit, which suggests there's something above, there's something higher, something advanced more than Christ, where Paul says there's nothing greater than Christ sitting on your right hand, and we are there with you, seated in the heavenly places. We thank you, Father, and we pray that you'd be magnified and glorified, and we would be helped through your word.